Well, Nikita Hirschhoff, primer of the former Soviet Union, gave a major address on the state of Soviet affairs before the Supreme Soviet in Moscow. His speech broke new ground as it openly addressed the savage excesses of the Stalin era. As Hirschhoff spoke, someone from the audience sent up an embarrassing note. Premier Hirschhoff, what were you doing when Stalin committed all these atrocities? He was rather upset when he received the note, and he shouted to everyone out there, Who sent up this note? Who's responsible? Stand up and be counted. I will give you one minute to stand up and claim it. The seconds ticked by, and nobody stood up to claim it. Finally, he offered this. All right, I'll tell you what I was doing. I was doing exactly what the writer of this note is doing now. Exactly nothing. I was scared to be counted. Are we ever afraid? Afraid to be counted? Afraid to stand up against the regime until a more convenient time? Today we're going to talk about in this piece of our series entitled The Days of Elijah in part five, Unafraid and Unterrified. Unafraid and Unterrified. Because we see in this piece of the story, we see Elijah being willing to be counted in a marked way against some very incredible odds. Yet in the entire process, we don't see Elijah afraid. We don't see him terrified. We see him confident. We see him determined We see him glorifying God by his actions. And we don't see him standing for matters of personal opinion. We're not talking about preferences. But no, we see him taking a stand for the true God, the Ten Commandments, the character of God. And so, as you recall, this all began with a bold message. As Elijah was jealous for the glory of God... And it went from there to a season of isolation where he was alone by the brook, trusting in the provision and timing of the Lord, followed by a call finally to go. And then we have the miracle of provision in Zarephath, followed by an incredible reunion that we looked at last time. And now we're going to pick up the story in 1 Kings chapter 18. And so if you have your Bibles, I encourage you to follow along as we read and allow this story to unfold. A story of stories. There are certain stories in Scripture that are intimidating to preach. Why? Because the story is so big, you want to make sure you do it proper justice or else you've done disservice. So pray for me. 1 Kings chapter 18, verse 1, And it came to pass after many days that the word of the Lord came to Elijah in the third year, saying, Go present yourself to Ahab, and I will send rain on the earth. Verse 2, So Elijah went. 
A lot packed into those three words. Elijah went. The Lord spoke and he went. He's been a hunted man now for three other places. It tells us very more specifically, three and a half years running from the law, if you will. No safe place to hide, seemingly, except the Lord protects him. But now he says, go. Go show yourself to the man that once you did. And so Elijah went to present himself to Ahab. And there was a severe famine in Samaria. Verse 3, and Ahab had called Obadiah, who was in charge of his house. Now Obadiah feared the Lord greatly. For so it was, while Jezebel massacred the priests of the Lord, that Obadiah had taken 100 prophets and hidden them, 50 to a cave, and had fed them with bread and water. So it's not just Elijah that's been protected. We have this group of 100 prophets that the Lord has protected through Obadiah, who is in charge of all of Ahab, wicked King Ahab's household. How this worked, I do not know. But somehow he was able to remain faithful to the Lord even in that position. And so first, he runs into Obadiah and Obadiah, he says to him, Obadiah, can I see King Ahab? And at first, Obadiah is very fearful and you can read that in the verses that follow. We have too much to cover to get into it now. But he says, I'm afraid you're gonna disappear and if I go to Ahab and then you don't show up, I'm a dead man and on and on until he has to promise, no, I will appear before him today. He says, okay, I will arrange it. I'll put things in place. And so jumping to verse 16, so Obadiah went to meet Ahab and told him, and Ahab went to meet Elijah. What do you think was going through the mind of King Ahab? Perhaps a bit astonished? Perhaps a sense of terror? I mean, was the prophet just going to utter another woe upon the land that has so devastated everything, our crops, our fields, our livestock, our livelihood, everything is in ruins. Is it possible he's going to hit us again? Or is it possible that I can have my men restrain him, to kill him, to take him out, and thus take away this curse on the land? Perhaps he remembered one of his successors, Jeroboam, 1 Kings chapter 13, who stretched out his arm and commanded God's prophet to be arrested and his hand withered. No, he doesn't want that to happen. So Ahab doesn't dare not show up But he's also a little terrified to lift his hand against Elijah. And so we're told he goes to meet him. And I imagine there's a host of soldiers, this idea that there's strength in numbers. Did he want Elijah dead? Absolutely. Was he intimidated and fearful of the prophet of God? I believe he was. So we continue on, verse 17 Then it happened when Ahab saw Elijah that Ahab said to him, Is that you, O troubler of Israel? One commentary I read this week says that's not strong enough language. They felt the better Hebrew translation is to say, Is that you who put a hex 
on Israel. You might remember that Ahab was married to Jezebel, that she was a high priest of Baal. She was instrumental and integral in bringing Baal worship into the Israelite camp, taking it to the next level, if you will. And as such, casting spells and hexes were all part of the thinking. And so Ahab is relating to what has happened and according to what he knows and understands, he says, is that you who's put a hex on the land? You troubler of Israel. And verse 18, and he, Elijah, answered, I've not troubled Israel. Could have left it there. But you and your father's house, in that you have forsaken the commandments of the Lord and have followed the Baals. Let's be clear. Let's not mince words. You are the one that brought this upon the land. You are the one responsible. You are the one that should be taking credit for all of this. And what is the issue staring them in the face? The Ten Commandments of God. The test then was obedience to these Ten Commandments. The test later of the three Hebrews was over the Ten Commandments and worship. The test at the end of time over an image to the beast is grounded again in the Ten Commandments. What are those Ten Commandments? No other gods before me. That one was broken. No graven images. That one was broken. Not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. Or we could say reverence. That's broken. Remember the Sabbath day. That's gone. Honor your parents. You remember how this monarchy functioned? We take out our parents. You shall not murder. We're doing that. You shall not commit adultery. That doesn't bother us. You shall not steal. The honor due only to God, perhaps, among other things. You shall not lie. You shall not covet. We don't mind doing any of these things. And it's here I want to introduce three traits worth emulating, and I'm just going to speak of the first one for now. In these direct words to King Ahab, we find in Elisha that he is unashamed and unterrified. I imagine he looks him straight in the eye and he delivers the message. There's something powerful about conviction, isn't there? I don't imagine Elijah kind of kicked the sand a little bit and said, I'm not the one actually who did this. You're the one and your father and the other one is your fault. Would that have made any kind of impression? I don't think so. But when you are under conviction and when you believe beyond a shadow of a doubt that you're in the center of God's will, God is the one that called me. God is the one that I'm on his errand, not my own. And so I have a conviction to give and to deliver his message straight. When God sends you and me on a mission, there's a confidence. We become unmovable, unshakable. No matter who stands before you, you stand for the right. You stand for principle. You stand for the Ten Commandments of God. And you're jealous for the glory of God. And you are unashamed and you are unterrified. No matter what happens, we can stand fast. 
We might be out of a job, but if we know we are in the center of God's will, we may have all the odds stacked against us, but if we know we are in the center of God's will, we can stand unashamed and unterrified. Prophets and Kings 140 says, today there is need of the voice of stern rebuke. For grievous sins have separated the people from God. Infidelity is fast becoming fashionable. Do you see that today? Is there a need for stern rebuke today? Is there a need for Elijah's today? And this idea, infidelity is fast becoming fashionable? Infidelity, that's adultery to God. That's adultery towards one another. That's sexual sin. Friends, we live in a time where sexual sin is all over the place. It's all over television. It's all over all these devices. Even in the ads and the commercials, adultery to God is everywhere. Find for me a media outlet, a form of entertainment that is not replete with throwing God's commandments under the bus. They lie, they cheat, they steal, they fornicate. They have no regard for God. They are their own God. Yet they are lifted up. They are glorified in our society. And we emulate them. We put them on t-shirts. We go to their concerts. We raise our hands in forms of worship. We listen to their messages in our earbuds. And we seek to follow the fashions of the world to emulate their beats and their rhythms. And we learn to worship ourselves, our opulence, our power, our success. No Baal worship is alive and well in America today. Just look around. Infidelity to God, to each other, is fashionable. Well, I'm part of a thruple. A triad of these. That's a couple that involves three people, which isn't a couple anymore. That's why they have these other names. Or you can be part of a quora or quad. That's four in this very intimate relationship. Or if it's beyond that, it's just a moresome. Can somebody say, have mercy? And you can mix and match genders all you like, like they're Lego pieces. It doesn't matter. Anything goes. And all that matters is that you be you and that you celebrate it. And society stands back and applauds and says, good for you. I admire your courage and your bravery. Thropo claim to have dreams, sex life, and that people are jealous. That's the society that you and I live in. Somebody sent this one to me a while back. This was from Wall Street Journal. The date is September 8 of this year. How TikTok serves up sex and drug videos to minors. For those of you that aren't aware, TikTok is an app and it feeds you things, primarily pictures and other things. And the thing that it was revealing in this app, because you might say, you know, Baal worship and sacrificing our kids, we don't do that. Do we? 
On this little app, I download TikTok, and TikTok is very advanced, but they're not the only ones by any means. They're very advanced at knowing how long, as you're scrolling through the feed, how long you stay paused at a picture. And so what does TikTok do? They put in, and they had somebody that set up an account as a 13-year-old, and they're going through these pictures that are being just put into their feed, and the longer they pause it, huh, that's kind of strange. What is that? Huh. Be it sex, be it drugs, be it something, even just hinting at any of those, and all of a sudden their algorithm learns, ah, this is what they like. And so we'll give them more and more and more and more and more. And within not much time at all, this 13-year-old, well, it's posed as that, but you know it's happening in real life all around us, is being fed and fed and fed garbage. And you say, we don't sacrifice our kids today. Do we not? Give them a wide open phone? and say, I trust you, have fun, be careful. It's a crazy world out there. Parents, you don't know how crazy the world is out there. I don't want to know how crazy the world is out there, and neither does your 13-year-old daughter. I'm so proud of Fletcher Academy this last summer. Made a huge shift in their policy at Fletcher Academy, and you know what it was? The only smartphone allowed on campus is a, what's it called? Help me. Gab phone. What's a gab phone? No data, zero data, no apps. You, you have a calendar, you have a calculator, you have a couple of these things, but you can't download TikTok. You can't put likes and, and all these other things on Facebook, Instagram, Snapchat, whatever. All that just goes away. To which I say, praise the Lord. Why do we need to fight for the rights of our kids to be able to be exposed to this kind of stuff? I better move on. Continuing in, in Patriarchs and Prophets is on 142. God calls for men like Elijah, Nathan, and John the Baptist. Nathan, you might remember, boldly went before King David and said, you are the man. You are the one that has sinned in this most heinous way, if you will. You will recall John the Baptist called the Pharisees, oh, generation of, oh, I thought it was kittens. It's vipers. He told Herod he was living in sin and it cost him his life. We could say his head. And in our story, Elijah does not mince words either. God calls for men like Elijah, Nathan, and John the Baptist. Men who will bear his message with faithfulness, regardless of the consequences. Men who will speak the truth bravely, though it call for the sacrifice of all they have. But too often we are pleasers of men. Sadly, too often... The honor of men is more important to us than the honor of God. Continuing, God cannot use men who in time of peril, when the strength, courage, and influence of all are needed, are afraid to take a firm stand for the right. 
He calls for men who will do faithful battle against wrong, warring against principalities and powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. But if you're afraid to take a firm stand for Christ, for God, for the Ten Commandments, for his character, for his glory, God can't use you, men or women. But when we are sure we are in the will of God, there's a confidence that comes that you will not be moved. And you become unashamed and you become unterrified. And that comes, I believe, from spending time with God. Here's where I stand. I can do no other. God help me, right? Continuing now in verse 19 in our story, Elijah's still speaking, but it's interesting. He's the one that's proclaiming and commanding like a king, and Ahab is the one that's following. Verse 19, now therefore send and gather all Israel to me on Mount Carmel, the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table meaning they are supported by the queen, by the monarchy. They are on your payroll. I want all of those guys to come to Mount Carmel. This is a picture of Carmel today. Interestingly, it was a disputed territory between Israel and the Phoenicians, and thus between the Phoenician god Baal and the Israel's god it's only about 1,500 feet high, and it's usually covered with oak trees and vineyards, or it would have been at that time. Of course, all the leaves would be down on the ground and long gone. And the vineyards that once were prosperous up on top were probably equally devastated. But I believe Elijah chose this elevation as the most conspicuous place for the display of God's power and for the vindication of the honor of his name. And so we continue the story, verse 20. So Ahab sent for all the children of Israel and gathered the prophets together on Mount Carmel. And just imagine all the pomp, all the circumstance, all of their outfits. Everything imaginable was put into this to make it seem as if they had all the power. They had all the prestige. But inside, I imagine they too we're nervous, putting on a big front, but nervous. And then verse 21, Elijah came to all the people and said, how long will you falter between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, follow him. But the people answered, not a word. It was like crickets. Not one stood up. Not one in the vast assembly dared show loyalty to Jehovah because there was this oppressive cloud of deception and blindness that had settled over these people. Second trait worth emulating in Elijah, undivided allegiance. Same question is posed today. Who's on the Lord's side? Who will stand for God and his Ten Commandments? Who will stand up against the masses and call sin by its right name? 
In the close of the great controversy, the debate still rages. Who will be counted with the saints? Who will keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus? Who in this sinful generation will be faithful to God and proclaim fear God and give glory to him? Or how many will be intoxicated with the wine of Babylon? And he simply asks, how long will you falter between two opinions? How long will you be non-committal? How long will you ride the fence? Sounds too much like the Laodicean church. You're neither hot nor cold. You can't make up your mind. You think you can be just a little bit of both. Friends, it's that little bit of both that's dangerous. Because you think you're in the church but you also have this foot in the world and you're just kind of swaying back and forth as it's convenient, but you're not committed. And what's Jesus' words to the Laodicean church? Because you're not hot and because you're not cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. I'll throw up. And friends, the day is fast approaching when the fence will no longer be an option Choose you this day whom you will serve. If the Lord is God, follow him. If Baal is God, follow him. And the test will come. And it will be a test of who is your God. It will be a test over the Ten Commandments, for or against. A test of life unto life or death unto death. Friends, what are we waiting for? Why don't we decidedly place both feet on God's side? Elijah was undivided in his allegiance. Verse 22, then Elijah said to the people, I alone am left a prophet of the Lord. Here's Elijah standing alone. Yes, there are other prophets that have been hidden away in caves. Yes, he will later see that there are 7,000 Israelites that have not bowed their knee to Baal. But at this moment, the reality is Elijah stands alone, the only one who has appeared to vindicate Jehovah. 850 false prophets of Baal and Asherah are there and they're decked out. So it seems that the odds are stacked against Elijah. 850 to one, that's the odds. Or is it 850 against one plus the almighty God? Prophets and kings says, above and around him are the protecting hosts of heaven angels that excel in strength. Elijah standing alone he feels alone but maybe he doesn't feel alone at all maybe he has a sense of the presence of God and his angels and so he's unafraid he's unterrified prophets and kings 174 and 175 says to wait patiently, to trust when everything looks dark is the lesson that leaders in God's work need to learn. That's a hard one. To wait 
patiently. Here is the patience of the saints. Here are they that are faithful to God and keep the Ten Commandments and the testimony of Jesus Christ. To wait patiently, to trust when everything looks dark is the lesson that leaders in God's work need to learn. Heaven will not fail them in their day of adversary. Nothing is apparently more helpless, yet really more invincible than the soul that feels its nothingness and relies wholly on God. Friends, that's a powerful quote. Nothing is apparently more helpless, yet really more invincible than the soul that feels its nothingness and relies wholly on God. She says this in another place, Prophets and Kings 147, unashamed, unterrified, the prophet stands before the multitude, fully aware of his commission. You know, sometimes... Many times, often, people will come and say, Pastor, how am I supposed to decipher God's will for my life? And that's a good question. And there are certain things that we can put in place. Certainly, God's not going to ask us to do something that's contrary to his word, right? So we need to make sure that we put that in its proper place. But there can be plenty of options that come our way, and we're wondering, is this God's plan? Is that God's plan? Is it this direction? Is it that direction? And here, perhaps, is a key to why it's so important not to rush that process because we need to know and be fully aware of God's commission so that when those dark days come, we will be unashamed and unterrified. Why? Because I know beyond a shadow of a doubt, God sent me here. And so here I stand. We gotta finish this story. Elijah said to the people, I'm gonna go back one more verse, verse 22. I alone am left a prophet of the Lord, but Baal's prophets are 450 men. Therefore, let them give us two bowls and let them choose one bowl for themselves and cut it in pieces and lay it on the wood. Put no fire under it and I will prepare the other bowl and lay it on the wood, but put no fire under it. Then you will call in the name of your gods and I will call in the name of the Lord. And the God who answers by fire, he is God. So all the people answered and said, it is well spoken. We agree, this sounds like a good face off, if you will. Verse 25, now Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, choose one bull for yourselves and prepare it first for you are many and call in the name of your gods, but put no fire under it. And so in verse 26, so they took the bowl which was given them and they prepared it and called in the name of Baal from morning even till noon saying, oh, Baal, hear us. But there was no voice, no one answered. Then they leapt about the altar which they had made. Friends, this is when the incantations begin. This is when they start dancing around. This is when the music and the drummers, I would imagine, start pumping out their beats. This is when all kinds of noise and screaming and writhing and tearing of hair and eventually cutting of flesh, as we will see. This is a frenzy of cultic activity and chaos. This is not a scene that you want your kids to watch. Yet this is the culture. This is how we worship, pastor. Yeah. 
And it goes on hour after hour after hour. Perhaps more and more debase. Their voices hoarse from shouting. All the while probably trying to think of a way to kindle fire on the altar because their God is not answering. And all the while Elijah is intently watching, knowing full well if they succeed, they will tear him to pieces. And the sun gets high overhead and it starts to fall as this continues to go on. Verse 28, so they cried aloud and cut themselves. You see the cultic activity? As was their custom with knives and lances until the blood gushed out of them. Perhaps people are so sincere of their worship of Baal, perhaps there's some dead bodies lying around. And when midday was past, they prophesied until the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice, all day. But there was no voice, no one answered, no one paid attention. You might think, couldn't Satan have done a thing? I'm sure he could have. In fact, we read in Inspiration, page 150, Prophets and Kings, gladly would Satan have come to the help of those whom he had deceived, who were devoted to his service. Gladly would he have sent the lightning to kindle their sacrifice. But Jehovah has set Satan's bounds. Amen restrained his power and not all the enemy's devices can convey one spark to Baal's altar. Interestingly, and we may unpack this another time, we see in Revelation 13 that a time will come where another test will come and fire will come down, but it will be on the wrong altar. So fire isn't necessarily the test. God's 10 commandments is the test. Verse 30, then Elijah said to all the people, come near to me. So all the people came near to him and he repaired the altar of the Lord that was broken down. I imagine Elijah's calm demeanor as a prophet stood out in sharp contrast with all this fanaticism, don't you think? All this senseless frenzy of the followers of Baal and here Elijah, sensible in his right mind, is starting to repair the altar of God and reconstruct God's altar. This was revealing his respect for the covenant that the Lord made with Israel when they crossed the Jordan into the promised land. 12 stones, 12 tribes, And there's going to be four pitchers, but it's going to be three times. That's going to be 12 again. We can read about it. It's in verse 32. Then with the stones, he built an altar in the name of the Lord, and he made a trench around the altar large enough to hold two stays of seed. And he put the wood in order, cut the bull in pieces, and laid it on the wood and said, fill your water pots with water and pour it on the burnt sacrifice and on the wood. Then he said, do it a second time. So we have four water pots the second time. Then he says, do it a third time. So now we have 12 water pots, 12 stones. Perhaps a reminder that God's covenant is open to all 12 tribes. Remember your roots, guys. There's something about the number 12. You're supposed to be part of this. This is who you are, not that. 
sometimes people have a heyday with this. There's a drought in the land. Where are they going to get the water? This much water. Well, a few more verses down. Verse 40 mentions the brook Kishon. Perhaps there was still enough of a dribble there. I don't know. If not, they weren't that far from the ocean. And so perhaps this was salt water they poured. I don't know. But the stakes are too high. We're going to figure this out. If anybody has water anywhere, if not, we'll go to the ocean and get it. Verse 36, and it came to pass at the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice, the Elijah the prophet came near and said, and what we have that follows is Elijah's prayer. No pomp and circumstance, no loud ruckus music or chanting or screaming or cutting. He just bows reverently before this unseen God. He raises his hands toward heaven and offers a simple prayer. Doesn't take him all day to pray it. And the people are left to see the contrast. Let's see, we have screaming, foaming at the mouth, leaping from early in the morning to late in the afternoon. And then here we have an old man that gets on his knees and he prays a simple prayer. And he prays as if he knows Jehovah is there, a witness to the scene, a listener to his appeal. And it came to pass at the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice, Elijah the prophet came near and said, Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel, and I am your servant. And that I have done all these things at your word. Hear me, O Lord, hear me, that this people may know that you are the Lord God and that you have turned their hearts back to you again. Trait number three to emulate unwavering prayer. Our most effectual tool is. The prayer of faith. Yet sadly, we see prayer as a last resort, don't we? It's like that old saying, when all else fails, read the directions. When you tried everything else, well, we better pray. Friends, Elijah didn't pray as a last resort. For Elijah, prayer was his first and only resort. You may recall that all of this began as a result of his prayers. First sermon, we looked at this, James 5, 17. This is after all the explanation of the prayer of anointing. Then right on the heels it says, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the land for three years and six months. This began with Elijah's prayer, saying, Lord, do something. Your people are drifting from you. They are lost. You have to do something. Please, Lord, I'm imploring. I'm pleading with you. Get their attention. And this verse also tells us that though he was a hero, he was human. He had challenges. He had shortcomings. He has times of doubt and discouragement, which we will soon see. But here he's praying earnestly, and that's where the power is. He's not content that Baal's getting all the credit for the blessing of God. 
And so Elijah started to pray and pray and pray for God's people, jealous for the glory of God. Friends, do you pray? Do you pray personal prayers? Do you pray often? Well, I pray for my food. Do you set aside other times of your day to pray? Is it a priority? Or is it just a last resort? Here Elijah prays, and we just read his prayer. Hear me that your people may know that you are the Lord God. And the very next verse, verse 38, then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt sacrifice and the wood and the stones and the dust, and it licked up the water that was in the trench. I mean, this is incredible. This is miraculous. This is fire like we've not seen before, perhaps. We've heard about it, perhaps, and and talk of the sanctuary and God leading the children of Israel, but here to see fire come down and just consume it all. I imagine they were fearful in that moment that they themselves would be consumed. And in that moment, they see how greatly they have dishonored God. They see clearly the contrast between the unreasonable service of Baal versus the humble submission to the true God. And so in that moment, they cry out. Now when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and they said, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. Yet the priests of Baal, of all these satanic practices, they don't repent. And so to prohibit the spread of cancer, they're destroyed. Fear God and give glory to him. Don't drink of the intoxicating wine. If you do, you'll be marked. Verse 40, Elijah said to them, seize the prophets of Baal. Do not let one of them escape. So they seized them and Elijah brought them down to the brook Kishon and executed them there. The cancer was to be eradicated. God's name was to be vindicated. And in this signal victory on Mount Carmel, he used one man, a man with a nature like ours. But he was unashamed and unterrified. He was undivided in his allegiance. And he was unwavering in prayer. And all replete throughout his prayer is that they may know that you are the one, not me. And the people see it. And although he's alone and overwhelmingly outnumbered, he goes toe-to-toe with his hostile king in every force of hell. And because of the grace of God, he comes out victorious. Or should we say God is revealed victorious. We're told in inspiration that this was such a big event that even people that didn't have time, didn't want to bother, whatever the case may be, they didn't go up and make the trek up to Mount Carmel. They had things to do. But when that fire fell, they saw it. They heard it. They had a choice to make as well. And friends, I think these are the days of Elijah. Wickedness is permeating our land. 
And we're naive to think it's not in our church too. And we're told, let the two grow together. And I will be the one, I will be the righteous judge and will separate. But we need to call sin by its right name in a way that's unashamed and unterrified. We ourselves need to be undivided in allegiance to God and we need to be on our knees praying for the outpouring of God's spirit. And how exciting it would be if we emulated these same traits. How exciting it would be if through you and your decision to trust and follow and be dedicated to Jesus, others could see the true God above the false could stand on the commandments of God rather than the traditions of men. How exciting it would be if they could see a clear contrast between the wailing and destructive ways of the world and the calm and trust and the humble ways of God. And how exciting it would be to be a modern Elijah, to be unashamed, unterrified, undivided, unwavering. And I believe Jesus wants that for us. I believe he can do that for us. I believe he's longing to do that in and through us. If he did it for Elijah, a man with nature like ours, like yours, like mine, he can do it for us. Friends, this is the time. These are the days of Elijah. This is the time to stand up for the true God. This is the time to stand up for the Ten Commandments. And the time is coming when God will vindicate his people if we remain committed and faithful to him. And so if you just want to humbly pray, say, Lord, I don't feel like an Elijah. That seems like such a stretch. But maybe if I put more attention to my prayer life, Maybe if I allow the Holy Spirit to point out places in my heart that are divided, where I'm on the fence, and if I pray that the Lord will help weed those things out, maybe he too can allow me to be unashamed and unterrified and speak boldly the truth for this time. In my workplace, among my family, to my kids, to my grandkids, whatever this looks like. But today is the day. Now is the time. If not now, when? Dear Heavenly Father, we're reminded in this story of this incredible stand of faith and courage by this mighty man of prayer. Lord, you are vindicated in a marked way on that day. And I can't help but wonder how many ways you long to be vindicated through us if we too will be men and women of prayer, if we will be undivided in our hearts so you can create in us a spirit that is unafraid and unterrified as we seek to uplift our Lord and our Savior, and his character through those beautiful Ten Commandments. Lord, may you not miss those opportunities for your fire to fall, for people to see who you truly are. It's my prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.
This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.